This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Radio friends, we return again today to our series on the book of Nehemiah, and we are engaged in the ninth, in the ninth chapter of this wonderful book. We turn our attention today to verses 32 through 38, asking for God's blessing. Recall with me that last week we looked into the first verses of the ninth chapter and we saw that the people of God in Nehemiah's day were engaged in the most important activity of life, congregational worship. We have witnessed in this book that there was a spiritual revival among the people of God broken out under the leadership of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the man who had a heart for the cause of God on earth and had returned to build the walls of Jerusalem and to set in order the things that were wanting. Nehemiah had encouraged the people to be busy with the things of God and as a result the Holy Spirit had sparked renewed zeal for God and His Word in the heart of the people of God. That's very true. If you are busy with yourself all week and with this world and with your own entertainment and possessions, you will find little interest in spiritual things on Sunday. But the people of God have centered their life in the Word of God and in their calling before God, and that leads them to zealous worship. In their worship, they came under the light of God's goodness to them, God's goodness in Himself, God's goodness in the creation and providence, and especially God's goodness and his faithful work for the church. And under the x-ray light of God's goodness, they have seen themselves as sinners, proud and rebellious. And this has led them to see the brilliance of God's mercy, his mercy in Christ revealed to those humbled under their sin. And all of these things we sought to apply to ourselves as we considered that word last week. Now in verse 32 of Nehemiah chapter 9, we come to a significant transition from the reflection of the past to the contemplation of the present. The scene changes as the people of God met in worship no longer are focusing upon the degrading past, but their distressing present. They have turned from the heartaches of years gone by to the hardship of their own time, they speak to God now in worship of the troubles that have come upon us. They say to him that we are in great distress. They have changed from the reciting of woe and sin of the past to the reality of their own situation. We, O Lord, are met before thee. We are thy church. We need thy mercy and thy grace for our present difficulties and trials. Verse 32 in Nehemiah chapter 9 is the only petition to be found in the whole prayer that they bring to God. The only thing that they ask of God, this is what they ask. Let not all the trouble that has come upon us seem little before thee, 
There was one thing that lived down in their heart. They wanted to be assured that God pitied them, that God saw them, that God took thought of them, that God did not despise them, that God had compassion on them. I think of what we read in Psalm 40, verse 17. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinketh on me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Make no tarrying, O my God. Is this your prayer today? Is this your prayer as you come together to worship the Lord on this day? Is your one great need this? That the Lord would assure me that He thinks on me, that He sees me in the compassion of His dear Son. If, if I know that, then all is well. Is that true for you? It seems that the prayer is a bit strange. They pray to God now, Let not all the troubles seem little before thee that has come upon us. Our kings, and upon our princes, and upon our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and upon all thy people, let it not seem little to thee. Lord, don't let our trouble and problem seem insignificant to appear of no real account to thee, to be trivial, really, in the broader scope of things. Don't let it appear to be a small item on the agenda compared to some of the things that are before thee, O Lord. Now, that's strange, I say, because the Bible says that God loves us, loves the church, and that the church is the apple of his eye, and he says to them, You only have I loved. Isn't it true that we confess that God's whole eternal counsel is centered in his glory, the glory that he will reveal in the church of Jesus Christ? Isn't God's heart always filled with the needs, the concerns of his children, even as a father toward his children? Is he not the perfect father? And yes, that is true. That is absolutely true. But the prayer that they are making is understandable from our perspective. When you are brought low, when you groan under the sense of your sin and your littleness and your weakness, and especially when you have been under the load of trial for a long time and God has so humbled you, you are tempted to say, Does God really care? My troubles, my woes of heart, are they important to Him? Especially when the shame of it comes upon you, surely it's so bad, you say, concerning your sins. It's so shameful that God doesn't want to take an interest in me anymore. When you have been humbled, when you have been brought to see the shame of your own condition, and when you have been subjected to a long period of trial, then we are tempted to believe that our situation and our burdens are perhaps not of great concern to God. The people in Nehemiah's day were under trouble. They were weighed down and in great distress. They were in grief, sapping all joy and giving them sighing hearts. Now note that. These are the ones, the ones that are praying have been the ones who have been busy in the work of the Lord, in the building of the walls. They have felt the power of grace to gather them together under the word of God to worship. They are the ones who are in the church. We ask, what was the trouble then? Weren't things going so much better under Nehemiah than before? Why do they feel so burdened about trouble when things look so upbeat now? Well, a number of things. First of all, they saw that their troubles were many. They 
felt that they were being overwhelmed by troubles. It seemed to them that one trouble came after another. Let not all the trouble seem little to thee, they say. Secondly, these troubles that they complain of before God have been of long standing. They say this has been the situation since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day, 250 years. They say, thirdly, that these troubles are affecting all of them, all classes, all places of service, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, all thy people. The people of God are one. We are knit together in the love of God. And all these problems come upon us as a collective body. And they say finally to God, these troubles have affected our daily life. It is something that they had to deal with every waking moment. It was upon their hearts. It was taxiing them. They say to God, it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us. They have dominion over us. We are under their dominion. All of these things can be traced back to one thing, their sin. They are telling God about their trouble, which we must do too, but not in a way in which they are clueless as to why the trouble has come upon them. They know and confess that the root and the source of their trouble was their sin. Verse 33 but we have done wickedly. Verse 37, because of our sins. A spiritual ability had been given to these people. They did not stand around facing their troubles, scratching their head, wondering what went wrong. They did not go out the back door and scream into the night against all the woe and trouble and kick at the first object in their, in their presence. But they knew they knew the source of their problem was personal sin. I do not know the exact woe of your heart today, whether you're feeling overwhelmed, whether the difficulties before you are long-standing, affecting your relationship, your marriage, your family, your daily life. You may well have submitted to God under His chastenings, but you must not separate the woe of your heart very far from your own sin. And then you must go to the cross for the wonderful cleansing and the power of God's grace. There were two realities about the sins that they had committed that were so grievous now to them. The passage shows, first of all, that the sin that they had committed had made itself their master, the sin to which we would consent and give ourselves in slaves the sin to which we want to negotiate and take it on certain terms into our life, only at certain times, we would say. That sin is the power to enslave. They say we are the servants of another. What had happened was this, that the freedom of an independent life as a nation had been removed from them, and now they were paying taxes, and all the cream of the crop was going to the king of Persia, and the servitude was galling. It was hard to accept. It was over their own bodies. They have dominion over our own bodies. They say, verse 37, Now let God's word warn us this day. Young man, young girl, all of us, let it jar you awake. Sin, sin of lust, sin of envy, sin of vanity, sin of drunkenness, 
sin of sexual uncleanness, sin of cursing, sin of swearing, enslave. We call it addiction. Addiction is spiritual law in play. The reality of sin, which is consented to, has the power to hold. There's slavery today. We read in the, of the Far East, and in this country for that matter as well, young girls and boys enslaved and used for unspeakable perversions. Slave traitors in lust. Well, young man and young women, all sin is that way. Lust, drugs, drink, envy, gossip, jealousy, swearing, pornography. They are the sins that have dominion over the body. And oh, the distress that comes upon our life. There is freedom for our bodies under the King Jesus Christ, but nowhere else. And secondly, they saw that their sin resulted in giving their substance to another. They saw that they were only laboring for the increase of the king of Persia over them. They say, The land thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, it yieldeth much increase unto the kings that thou hast set over us. When we yield our life to a way of sin, you can work and work and work and work, and you'll have nothing to show for it. It's gone. Where is it? Did it go to the church? No. Did it go for the support of the family? No. Did it go for charities? No. Well, where did it go? Well, it's spent for the lords of pleasure. It's spent on gambling, drugs. Where does your money go? Who are you serving? You see, when you serve sin, your money goes. Where does it go? More CDs. You've got a college loan. You have to pay that back, but you can't pay that back. Why? Are you spending your money for the kings of the earth? For fashion? Friday night drinks? Do you give your substance to another? Not just money now, but your substance. Your substance. Your energy, your talent, your time. Are you serving the King, the Lord Jesus, who replenishes and bless and blesses? Or do you serve the slave masters of sin? It was under this, as they are brought to see these things in their own lives, and it's as they're struggling now with the effects of all of these things in their lives, that they cry out as repentant people of God, Let not all the trouble that has come upon us seem little to thee. That was a heartfelt cry. Lord, though shame cover our face and guilt, and though truly we have no right to say anything before thee, yet, O Lord, be mindful of us. Assure us that thy eye is turned to us in pity and compassion as we are brought humbled and low before thee. It's not a prayer in which they are standing aloof and saying, Lord, you better help that guy over there, that gale over there. They need a lot of help, Lord. All's okay here, Lord. 
but you better help them over there. No, it's a prayer which majors in directing our thoughts towards ourselves. A heartfelt prayer. The prayer of the prodigal son, I will arise and go to my father and say, I have sinned and I am not worthy to be called thy son. Make me as a hired servant. The urgent plea was this. We ask God to have a regard to our troubles, to take note of it and to make us assure that he is fully aware in his mercy that his heart of mercy has turned and is ever upon his children who are brought low and know the sorrows brought by their own sins. It is not a prayer rooted in impenitence. It is not a prayer saying, Lord, take these troubles away. Lord, why should this have to happen to us? After all, can't you just fix the problems we have? We're sorry, just fix it now. No, it was an acknowledgement that they were in the trouble, all right, and that came often under the just will of God. They understood that. They're not finding fault with God's ways, but they're asking as repentant children of God, Lord, in the midst of these troubles, we need something. What we need is to be assured that Thou dost look upon us in Thy mercy. Let not our trouble seem little to Thee. They're asking for God's compassion. Lord, understand how this feels to us. Lord, we are casting ourselves upon thy marvelous, thy marvelous compassion, the understanding of thy perfect heart. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. In all of our affliction, O Lord, be afflicted with us. Let the angel of thy presence save us. In thy love and pity, redeem us and bear us and carry us under these difficulties. That's their prayer. The troubles of God's children are not little to the Lord. That's the Word of God today. And what a wonderful Word of God that is. That's true. That's true concerning every trouble and every difficulty that the Lord in His way and will sends into your life. The death of your thirteen month old child the death of your loved teenager the life and the spark of your heart these troubles do not seem little to the Lord God knows God knows what our troubles are God feels God understands it's not little to him. He knows what is behind those tears. He knows what is going on in your heart which words can't express. He knows the trouble and the woe which would drive you from the company of men and women to sob it out before the Lord. Your woe is not little to him. Children, your mom and dad might not understand any more how it feels like to be a teenager and the difficulties you're facing. But the Lord knows. Young adult, you may say, oh, you don't think there's many in the church that we can really understand where we're at. Well, the Lord does. 
You say, as a child of God, but my way and my experience is different from anybody else. I tell you, but you would not be really able to understand my heart life. But God does. The great heart of God bears it all. All our trouble and all our woe. It is not little to Him. The prayer is, O Lord, as we stand as repentant sinners before Thee, let us be assured that we are viewed in Thy compassion. Let us be assured that in the midst of our troubles Thou art a God of mercy and compassion, not forgetting us and working Thy good and sovereign way. That's the prayer. Here's the reason why we know that God does view us in His compassion at all times. It's given in verse 32. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the terrible, that is, the awe-filled God, who keepest covenant and mercy. God keeps covenant and mercy. God keeps covenant. God's covenant is His will that He will be bound to His people in love that He will show them great things about Himself, that He will draw them close to Him, and that He will use everything as a means subservient to His purposes to glorify Himself in us and to make us His friends and servants. God's mercy is His compassion for the miserable and His desire to do unto them good, to give the best for the worst, to raise the highest, to raise the lowest the highest, to enrich beggars. God keeps covenant and mercy, and that means so much more than we can even understand. It's not simply that God sticks it out, that He hangs in there because He said He would. Yes, He is faithful, but that God keeps covenant means that His heart never alters, His love never grows old, His feelings never flag, His compassions never fail, because He is the covenant-keeping God. The troubles of our heart shall ever be all before Him, and He will dispatch immediately mercy and grace in time of need because he keeps covenant he will never despise our grief he will never despise our struggles and our woes always 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 he loves us proof you want proof look look to the cross on Golgotha he keeps covenant and mercy by healing all of our diseases by bearing all our sorrows by obtaining for us the forgiveness of sins in the way of the giving of His own Son, that we might live forever. Are our troubles little to God? Are yours? Are they insignificant to Him? Does it matter to Him? Oh, yes. When you come to worship and when you come in prayer to tell God your troubles... He already knew about them before you came. He is sovereign. And now they are all before Him in Jesus Christ. And He has granted you something for those troubles. Grace and mercy, which never fail. Compassion, which is unending. And this word from God. My son, my daughter... 
It must needs be so now. I will bear you through this unto a day of perfect glory. Let's pray. Father, we again thank Thee for the Word and pray for its blessing upon our hearts in this day. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed Churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.